Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 78, The Battle of Betafalm. On January 24, 1941, as the 4th Armored Brigade tore into General Banini's armored group near Makili, Wavell was in O'Connor's headquarters to discuss taking Benghazi. Their enthusiasm matched those of Whitehall, but as the commanders on the ground, their job was to figure out if it was doable. After all, if it was possible, the whole of Cyrenaica would be in Allied hands, and Egypt and the Suez would be that much more safe. Benghazi could then be set up as an advanced base that could either support further incursions west or serve as the most western defensive position against the Italians. And finally, with Cyrenaica in British hands, troops and equipment could finally be pulled back into reserve into Egypt, just as Churchill wanted and kept pushing for. But there were other considerations. Neither Wavell nor O'Connor wanted to be guilty of what the Italians had blundered into, namely moving ahead before all was in place to guarantee the best chance of success. Up until this point, Wavell's logistical staff, including General Jumbo Wilson, along with O'Connor's staff, had made logistic miracles a matter of routine in order to get 13th Corps as far as McKeeley. But all good things must come to an end. That supply line, as well as the remainder of O'Connor's armor, was in shambles. The leader of the Desert Rats, General Michael O'Moore Krieg, was down to 50 cruiser tanks, which were meant for tank-versus-tank combat, and 95 light tanks, which only housed a machine gun on top. And even then, Krieg's tanks did not have enough fuel or ammo to go along the coast or to cut across the desert, which was sure to be rough going, and then give battle. The supply line itself was equally bereft of what was needed. The confiscated Italian trucks were now beginning to break down, and the men, constantly being hustled by O'Connor, were now past exhaustion. They had been at this for weeks. But despite all this, now that the order for Benghazi was given, 13th Corps was expected to move, right smartly. But how? Tobruk had to be reorganized to increase its capacity. Otherwise, it was practically useless for what O'Connor needed right now. McKeeley had to be cleared up and restocked so it, too, could be used as a jumping-off point. But the best reason for a small delay, despite word from on high, was that the 2nd British Armored Division had just landed at the Suez. And to reinforce the Army of the Nile as soon as possible, the first two regiments of 2nd Armored were being sent west just as soon as they were ready to take over for Krieg's 7th Armored Division which was, mechanically speaking, just barely 
holding it together. But waiting for the 2nd Armored's first two regiments to reach McKeeley meant that a renewed offensive with fresh tanks couldn't start until February 10th at the earliest. This waiting would drive O'Connor mad, but that was his proposal to Wavell, and Wavell agreed. In that same message, Wavell also agreed with O'Connor's plan on how to take Benghazi, as well as the whole of Sinaica. O'Connor would have the 7th or 2nd Armored, whichever one was ready, cut across the unreconnoitered desert, practically due west from McKeeley, and make for the coast road, to the Gulf of Surti. Meanwhile, McKay and elements of the 6th Australian Division would continue along the coast road, pushing the Italians west from Derna, and keep pushing them until all Italian units in Cyrenaica were trapped between the British armor and infantry forces. The first part of this plan unfolded as Derna was taken by the Australians on January 30th, and the Italian forces there retreated west and then south towards Benghazi. Wafel fully backed this plan and promised to do his part, to hold off Churchill and allow O'Connor time to regroup. They would both have to hope that the situation in Greece would not dramatically change in the next two weeks. But it would. However, as happened so many times during Operation Compass, the direction of the next battle was taken out of their hands, and the two British officers found themselves improvising yet again. Fortunately for the Allies, thinking on one's feet seemed to be a British strength. At O'Connor's headquarters in Bamba, he was joined on January 29th by Brigadier Dorman Smith, sent by Wavell. Together, they were to work out the next push, with Dorman Smith reporting back to the CNC. On February 1st and 2nd, British air reconnaissance discovered movements from the Italian 10th Army. That could only be one thing, a general withdrawal from Cyrenaica. And just like that, the conversations, debates, and timetables went out the window. If the bulk of the remaining 10th Army was to be captured or destroyed, O'Connor had to move sufficient forces to a location south of Benghazi, ASAP. Could Krieg take what he had in its current shape, dash another 150 miles through practically unknown desert, and still have enough left over to stop the desperate Italians? What would happen when his forces, in whatever shape, met the Italians at the Gulf of Surti? The answers to these questions could not be guessed at or hoped for. They had to be yes and victory. Still, prudence demands taking a hard look at the facts, and the various logistics teams did just that and came back with a reply. It was just possible. The armored force would leave with full tanks and the ability to carry their own food and ammo, what there was of it. Convoy trucks would follow with two days of food, fuel, and water and two and only two refills of ammo. That was it. No more supplies could reach the armored force until after this latest battle of Operation Compass was decided. So, as rickety as things were, 7th Armored Division was to set out at first light on February 4th and make for IMSAS. Simultaneously, along the coast, elements of the 6th Australian were to continue their push in a slightly better state. 
The next day, O'Connor had Dorman Smith fly back to Cairo to formally ask Wavell's permission to push on to the Gulf of Surti and to give his impression of 13 Corps' chances of success. Wavell approved and responded to O'Connor's apology for not finishing off General Bambini's tanks by saying, Tell General O'Connor not to fret. It is contretemps like those that add interest to that very dull business, war. Dorman Smith flew back to Bamba the next day and was surprised to see Michael O'Moore Krieg in attendance at O'Connor's headquarters as his throat was still very sore. But when he learned that the operation could not be delayed and was a go, Krieg made for 7th Armored Headquarters and prepared for battle. What the British wouldn't know until later was that the recent tank battle at Makili broke Marshal Graziani's, the Governor-General of Libya and Commander-in-Chief, spirit. What made it worse, not that it was needed, was when Bambini told Graziani that the Italian medium tanks just couldn't stand up to the British cruiser tanks. On the heels of this was a report from Mussolini himself that said there was a possible landing of more British troops in French North Africa, and the recent attacks of a British long-range desert group along with Colonel Leclerc's Free French Forces from French Equatorial Africa was giving the Sunisi tribes in southern Libya a shot of boldness. That settled it for Graziani. It was time to leave. Orders were issued on February 1st to abandon Cyrenaica and reform a defensive line at Serti, at the bottom of the gulf of that same name, or about 200 miles west by land from Betafam. From there, Tripoli would be protected. And when the promised Ariete armored and Trieste mechanized divisions came, along with whatever the Germans were going to donate, that would be the time to move east again. Egypt would be a part of the Italian-African Empire. Other orders called for General Garibaldi to give up command of Cyrenaica and organize the new defensive line. He was replaced by General Tellera, who was now in charge of the retreat. With all that settled, Marshal Graziani left Benghazi by air on February 3rd. But even by then, the 10th Army's withdrawal was already in full motion. 7th Armored Commander Krieg, sore throat and all, knew the full situation of the Italian retreat and felt the need for speed. So he quickly organized his wheeled and treaded vehicles. Putting his wheeled vehicles made up of Lieutenant Colonel J.F.B. Combe of the 11th Hussars out in front, they were followed by Brigadier Conter's 4th Armored Brigade. Next came the majority of the still operational medium tanks, followed by the support group. And bringing up the rear was the 7th Armored Brigade, with their very few serviceable tanks. All told, Krieg traveled with about 50 cruiser and 80 light tanks. Following O'Connor's orders, Krieg's armor started west at first light on February 4th. But the first 50 miles were much like when the British armor tried to make for Derna along the coast. Rocky outcroppings shredded tires and broke tank treads. The light tanks were the most affected. As the armored vehicles broke down, the crew would strip it of everything of value, hop onto another tank or truck, and the dash to the coast continued.
By 3 p.m., the 11th Hussars reached Imsus, about 60 miles from the coast road. The small Italian garrison there was caught completely off guard, but managed to jump into whatever vehicles they had at hand and took off into the west. Brigadier Harding, who was still with the slower-moving tanks, flew ahead to Imsus to speak with Krieg. They discussed the latest air reconnaissance about the Italians, who were now in full flight, already south of Benghazi, and decided that at 7 a.m. the next day, February 5th, a smaller force designated Combe Force, under the command of Lieutenant Colonel John Combe, would speed ahead in the faster wheeled armored cars and make for Attila, 50 miles to the southwest, then turn west by northwest and continue until reaching the coast road, thus cutting off the main Italian retreat. The slower tanks to the rear would still head due west and make for Sulak. The idea was for Combe Force to stop the Italian retreat and for the heavier armor to hit them on their left flank as they came south. That evening of February 4th found General O'Connor, because of the type of leader he was, heading west himself behind the main armor group. He got on the road right after meeting with Wavell at Tamimi. Soon he passed 13 Corps' headquarters, also moving west, and urged them on as he passed them by. Although keeping in touch with his army on the wireless, he saw his main job now as being ready to give his armor a shove in the back should they need it. But as he traveled along in his staff car, he couldn't help but gape at the numerous broken-down light tanks and other vehicles he passed by. In a rare moment of saying out loud what he was thinking, though not as taciturn as Wavell, O'Connor turned to Dorman Smith, who was riding along with him, and said, My God, do you think it's going to be all right? It was an exclamation, not a question. Regardless of any response by Wavell's representative, the armor would have to keep going. With the dawn of February 5th, Combe Force dashed towards Attilat at full speed. Fuel was not considered. This was a race. By 10.34 that morning of the 5th, Combe Force had reached Attilat. As they found it deserted, Combe radioed Krieg and recommended they keep moving west. Krieg agreed. He ordered a part of the force to make for Betafam and the other to head towards Sidi Salih, a little further south, in case the force at Betafam missed the first column of retreating Italians. Also on the move February 5th was General Connor. His goal was to make for 7th Armored Division headquarters, now at Wadi Azin. He set out in his staff car, accompanied by Dorman Smith, and was followed by another car, as well as an armored car. But before too long, the backup car, as well as the armor car, gave up the ghost, due to the rough terrain. It seemed only logical that, at their present speed, his staff car would follow suit. But he needed to get to Wadi Azin. The most important part of Operation Compass was unfolding. He decided to leave the crews of the other cars with their vehicles. It was only a matter of time before a supply truck or another part of the convoy came along, while he and Dorman Smith went on, alone. He left the radio with the stranded men. After all, his car still worked, so wouldn't be able to contact anyone or give follow-up orders if the situation changed. Trying not to fret, the general put his trust in his men and his plan.
It wasn't until the evening of the 5th that O'Connor and Dorman Smith reached Wadi Azin. Exhausted from being bounced around by the desert surface, O'Connor pushed all that away and found Krieg, eager to know the day's events. This is what he was told. As Comforce found a tea light deserted, they pushed on until reaching the coast road at Betafam. It was noon. Thirty minutes later, a column of Italian trucks appeared just within sight. And, as the other small armored car force at City Sali had not called in sighting the enemy, Combe knew they had won the race. The sight of British armored cars in their path confused the Italians. But, as they came closer, the British let loose a few artillery shots. It was then the trucks before them stopped. Guessing that the shocked Italians were radioing for orders, Combe's armored cars were relieved when Renton's 2nd Battalion, the Rifle Brigade, showed up to assist. At 3 p.m., 30 Italian trucks tried to run the roadblock, but were captured. It was that or die in the attempt, and the Italians didn't have a taste for that, and honestly, who can blame them? Two hours later, a larger column appeared, but again was stopped and captured. For this last action of the day, Combe Force was assisted by 4th Armor Brigade. It had reached Antilat at 4.30 that day, and Krieg had ordered it on, a part to assist Combe and the other half to make for Solok, per O'Connor's original orders. The half that went to assist Combe had come right at the moment the armored cars were trying to stop the large column and attacked it in their flank. By night, the British had 1,000 more Italian prisoners, but continued to watch the road, now lit by burning Italian trucks, tanks, and assorted vehicles. O'Connor, the little terrier, who had been without a radio all day, was delighted and relieved. His trust in his men had paid off. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now, you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. With the dawn of February 6th, British air reconnaissance had spotted the remainder of the Italian 10th Army, just north of Betafam. That force consisted of the remnants of five of Graziani's battered divisions, but also four more divisions as yet unscathed. There was no way 
Comb Force, Renton's Rifles, and a part of the 4th Armor Brigade could contain the panicked Italian tidal wave coming at them. But, as we have seen many times before this, the British Commonwealth forces at Ground Zero would have to make do. British air reconnaissance was done for the day, as a series of rain squalls, one after the other, battered the belligerents on the ground. Hoping the rain would help them, the Italians came on, starting their attempts at 7.30 that morning of the 6th. But indicative of their entire North African campaign, the Italians, despite their overwhelming numbers, bungled their retreat by sending small parties forward, led by medium tanks, to attempt to slip past the British. But blocking their way was Comb Force and the Rifle Brigade and the 4th Armor Brigade of the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment. The tanks were slightly to the northeast of Comb Force, with 19 cruisers and 7 light tanks. They had reinforcements, 11 more tanks actually, but they were still at Antilat and completely out of fuel. All day, through the rain, the Italians came at the British, wave after wave, and wave after wave, they fell to the British. The Italian tanks to the British tanks, or anti-tank weapons, and the other Italian vehicles to Combs mounted machine guns. By noon of the 6th, the British had destroyed 40 Italian medium tanks, and destroyed or turned back those that had accompanied them. But the 2nd Royal Tank Regiment could just make out at least 50 more Italian medium tanks to the north. They themselves were now down to 15 cruisers to combat them, if the Italians came forward. At one point near the end of the day, 30 Italian tanks got by the 2nd Royal Tanks. This could have been the beginning of a general breakdown on the part of the British. But comb force with their rifles and two-pounders being manned by others had been sufficiently warned by the 2nd Royal. The Italian tanks got to comb force after dark. But after all was said and done, only four Italian tanks and lorries got through. It could have been much worse. However, the other British force at City Sali got those Italians who thought they had seen the last of the enemy. But, as Sir Basil Littlehart makes clear, the British defensive forces cleverly used the terrain to their advantage. The enemy's main columns began to appear on the scene, escorted by tanks. There were over 100 M13 medium tanks in all. Fortunately, the Italian tanks came along in packets, instead of a concentrated body, and kept near the road whereas the British tanks skillfully maneuvered to gain fire positions, where their holes were concealed and protected by folds in the ground. A series of these tank battles went on all day, the brunt being borne by the 19 cruisers of 2nd Royal Tank Regiment. And with these tactics, the British were still in control of the coast road by the end of February 6th. The next day, as the sun barely touched the sky, the Italians, who had finally figured out a better strategy, amassed 30 medium tanks and came at the British line. Whether intentional or not, the Italian tanks came at the position held by the Rifle Brigade. If there was a relatively weak point in the British line, at least for enemy tanks, this was it. 
As the Italian tanks and British anti-tank pieces clashed, things seemed to be going the Italians' way, as they went deeper into enemy territory. But then, someone did a little quick thinking and asked for permission to attack the enemy tanks, although they were mixed in with the riflemen. Permission was given, and the artillery shells started firing. As with everything else in Operation Compass, it came down to training and professionalism. One by one, the Italian tanks were taken out. Still, the desperate Italians came on. To make the point, the last Italian tank was hit as it neared the Rifle Brigade's officer's mess tent. By then, the 4th Armor Brigade had forced another large group further north to surrender. Meanwhile, McKay's Australians were tearing into the Italians' rear position, and all this was too much for the overwhelmed Italians. Soon, white flags were being raised by every single Italian in sight who had a white flag. By 9 o'clock that morning, February 7th, it was over. The battle at Bed of Fom formally ended. Again, I'll let Sir Basil Littlehart sum up. Everywhere, the Italian infantry and other troops surrendered in crowds when they had lost the protection of their tanks. Another 101 tanks were found on the battlefield, mostly in the area where 7th Royal Tank Regiment had fought the previous day. Of the total, 84 had been hit by two-pounder shells, eight by other guns, six were uncertain, while 39 had been abandoned intact. Only four tanks were lost by the 4th Armor Brigade in the fight. The achievement of the tanks owed much to the efforts of those who kept them supplied with petrol and ammunition under great difficulties. Again, another victory. Again, the British had demonstrated their ability against the Italian military, who were outgeneraled and outfought. At this point in Operation Compass, 13th Corps had captured 130,000 prisoners, taken or destroyed 350 tanks, and 850 artillery pieces. For perspective, Allied casualties were just over 1,900 killed, wounded, or captured. And at no point did O'Connor ever have more than 30,000 men. The news of this latest victory reached O'Connor at Krieg's headquarters. O'Connor turned to Dorman Smith and said, quote, We'd better send a message to Archie. What shall we say? Unquote. Dorman Smith offered up that Wavell would probably appreciate a hunting metaphor. The message sent to Wavell read, quote, Fox killed in the open. Unquote. The entire message was sent in the clear so that Mussolini would have no trouble picking it up. And one last time, the booty was counted. 20,000 prisoners, 112 medium tanks, 216 guns, and 1,500 wheeled vehicles. Also, General Tellera, the new commander of the Italian 10th Army, had been killed. Clearly, a celebration was in order. The men, as had been their wont, used Italian supplies and relaxed throughout the day. O'Connor had a drink, too, but only sipped at it. His mind was already thinking of the next stage, the next advance. His hope was that the usual pattern would follow, as it had followed after Sidi Barani, Bardia, and Tobruk. 
His victory would pull another approval from London to continue. To O'Connor, surely Churchill would prefer an advance here, one that had a great chance of success, versus an operation in Greece that had a great chance of failure. And just as O'Connor outmaneuvered the Italians, he now needed to outmaneuver the Prime Minister. So, O'Connor sent Dorman Smith to see General Wilson, now the military governor of Cyrenaica, and therefore his immediate supervisor. They talked in the city of Barca, and Wilson was in favor of putting the question to Wavell. So together, they drafted a message. But as Wilson's command was just being set up, there were no signals in town. So, Dorman Smith drove to Tobruk and sent the message. Then, he drove directly to Cairo. He arrived at 4 a.m. on February 12th. At 10 o'clock that same morning, he was brought into Wavell's map room. But instead of seeing maps of Tripoli on the wall, there hung maps of Greece. Wavell displayed the maps with a less-than-enthusiastic wave of his arm and said, You see, Eric, I'm starting my spring campaign. That same day, five days after the Battle of Betafam, Lieutenant General Erwin Rommel got off a plane in Tripoli. He had been chosen by Hitler personally to lead the German forces in their assistance to their Italian allies. Two days later, he wrote to his wife, quote, All going as well as I could wish. I hope to be able to pull it off. End quote. As for electric whiskers, General Bergonzoli, he never made it to the British line in the road. He left Benghazi in the middle of a large force, hoping to get through in the ensuing confusion. But not too far out of town, he was taken over by an armored car. He told his captors, almost disapprovingly, quote, You got here a bit too quickly today. Unquote. The Australians had, weeks ago, promised themselves that if they capture the general, they would see for themselves if his beard could really give off sparks. But they never got a chance. Bergonzoli was quickly flown to Cairo. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So, you've probably noticed I haven't done an Audible lately, but I have searched all over audible.com, and there is nothing um, besides what I've already mentioned on um, North Africa, Egypt, uh, Tripoli, East Africa, Greece, Texas, nothing like that. So, if anyone's out there listening that works in Audible or has anything to do with Audible, you might just want to work on that. So, instead, I thought I'd go in a different direction. I found and really enjoyed the following, uh, Edward R. Murrow and the Birth of Broadcast Journalism by Bob Edwards of NPR fame. Um, you all know Edward R. Murrow as reporting live during the Battle of Britain from the rooftops of London. Uh, he did that, and he really had an agenda. He wanted to put the war in every American living room because he wanted America to hur hurry up and get involved in the war, and that was just his way of doing it. Um, and he also got William Shire started in reporting in uh, Europe in World War II, who, of course, went on to write the book The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Um, but more than that... Um, um, after after the war, he was involved in the Joseph McCarthy um, 
witch hunts, if you will, and he helped to bring him down. So it's an amazing time, an amazing story, especially the first part of the book where he talks about what he's doing um, in London, trying to bring the Americans in the war. And he wanted to make it as horrific for those Americans sitting on their couch or chair, listening to the radio, you know, being relatively comfortable. He just wanted to bring the horror of war to them. And um, I think we can all agree he did a very good job. So you should definitely check out uh, that audiobook. Um, I just want to thank a couple of people for donations before I do the newspaper drawing. Um, John G. from Mesquite, Texas, probably the most interesting or unique amount that anybody has ever sent me. So, John G., thank you very much. That was very funny. And then there's Brett G. from Eugene, Oregon. So thank you both uh, very much. I would like to welcome aboard a couple more members. Um, Aaron W. from Nova Scotia, Canada. Samantha W. from Cavisham, UK. Sven from Bergen, Norway. Joe G. from Chula Vista, California. Sorry if I'm saying that wrong. Andrew C. from Orinda, California. And David E. from Bethesda, Maryland. So thank you all. It really does help me here. I've already ordered my first set of books for my new podcast that I haven't launched obviously. Um, but I'll be getting that out the first episode as soon as I can. Um, so just thank you, uh, everyone. So now we're going to do the drawing for the replica newspaper. This is a copy of the Pittsburgh Sun Telegraph from Tuesday, May 8th, 1945. So it talks about the victory in, um, Europe and how everyone's promising to go on and finish off the Japanese. Um, it's, it's got just a ton of information in it. I think you'll really like it. So I'm going to bring my daughters in here now and, uh, do the drawing. Thank you, uh, ladies, for helping me do the drawing. They're very excited, as you can tell. Uh, they are on the ground laughing that they're so excited. So what we'll do is what we did last time. They'll each draw a name, and those will be the three finalists, and then I'll draw a name, and that will be the winner of the Replica newspaper from May 8th, 1945. So, ladies, who would like to go first? Sophie, would you like there? Okay, she raised her hand, but this is a podcast. No one can see you raise your hand. Okay, Pick out a name. There you go. All right. Santos S. is the first finalist. Thank you. Kiki, would you like to pick out a name? Okay. All right. Okay. Hold, there we are. Reach all. There we are. Just one. Okay. Okay. It's somebody okay. A. Alex A. is the second finalist. Sweetie, would you like to do okay. the last one? Okay. She's got her hand in there. She's... She's pulling out several names. She's like, okay, um, Tom D. All right, these are the three finalists. So take all the names out. Okay, now we're going to move that. Okay, so I'm going to put these three finalists back in the cup, shake them up as best I can. And the winner of the replica newspaper with, okay, now my daughter wants me to shake the cup a certain way as opposed to up and down the traditional sense. I'm going to go sideways. All right, cool. So the, okay, uh, thank you. So the winner my hand's stuck in the cup now. The winner is, for the replica newspaper, Santos S. Yay! Yay! All right. Okay. Very excited. No, you, you didn't win. Okay, Santos, I will be contacting you on Facebook as soon as I can. Thank you for everybody who participated. And I'll try to find something else to give away. Maybe my youngest daughter. All right. So thank you, guys, and I'll see you as soon as I can with episode 79. Take care, everyone.